Hello and welcome to Setting the Stage, episode 27, Tim and Al Nui. Uh, you may have noticed that this episode is coming out a bit later than my usual schedule. I've had a lot of things uh, changing in my professional and life and uh, my wife's been having some problems so I've been helping her out with that and I haven't had as much time that I could devote to the podcast and giving it my full energy, but now I'm back doing this. It has been a while since we've gotten any people asking to be on the podcast through surveys or anything like that. And I've reached out to a few people to see if they're interested, but I haven't gotten any responses. So I'm not sure when we'll have another episode. I'll probably have to try and drum up some more interest. But for now, you can kind of think of this as like a last episode of this season that's been a bit delayed. And then I'll work on trying to get something else coming out later. But thank you for listening and on to the episode. Today I'm here with Tim, and we're going to talk about his D&D world, but before we get into that, uh, let's uh, hear who you are outside of the game. Uh, my name's Tim. I live in small town, Iowa. Um, I cool. provide in-home care for people with special needs when I'm not doing various different nerd things. Yeah, that's um, tough work. Yeah. it. Uh, I, I did it for a few years right after high school, and then I started back again in uh april at this the same business i was back before and it because mm-hmm. it pays better <laughs> yeah yeah oh that's good i also spent a lot of time with my family my nieces um i've started introducing a couple of them to D and they're kind of excited to play a game um mm-hmm, we haven't cool. had much chance to actually sit down and play we did once with my eldest niece and my father and we had a really good time and so the others want to join in too but I have to figure out kind of a simplified rule set for all of them. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, so have you played before you were playing with your family? Oh, yeah. Uh, I first uh, learned about D&D and kind of started getting into it by listening to podcasts. One that I really like was the Ox Venture podcast. Uh, that's run by uh, Outside Xbox, and they just do a lot of like random one-shot adventures, and they're just a lot of fun, so that's kind of how I got into it. The first time I actually played the library up in Olwine, just north of where I live, mm-hmm. uh, their library was running an open D&D game uh, cool. run by a friend of mine. Um, so I just went up there and started playing. And after a few weeks, the library was going to shut the game down because we weren't getting a whole lot of numbers. And also they wanted the guy running it who worked at the library to do different stuff. All right. On that night. So I kind of just stepped in and was like, hey, can we keep playing if I DM? And the library was like, sure, why not? And so that's how I started getting into the game, uh, being writing the uh, story and all that. And it was awful. <laughs> yeah. In, in retrospect, my first few adventures were probably horrible to be a part of <laughs> just because it was not balanced. It wasn't really thought through. Uh, but I had a blast. <laughs> oh, I feel like everybody has that kind of growing pains, and usually uh, your players aren't as aware of it as well, in my experience, because usually like you're all they're also new to the game when someone's taking over a DM like that. Oh, uh, it started out as a adventures league, so basically oh, okay. anyone could hop in or out as they wanted. That part of it has kind of spread to all my current games in that we don't 
you you have and always will exist in the game until you don't, and then you come back and you are always there the whole time. <laughs> mm. Okay, yeah, I'm used to that sometimes for when people are missing. Yeah. I thought Adventures League stuff was usually done through game shops. I didn't know they could do it at libraries, too. Or is this uh, more like you're just doing that kind of feel to it? It's been a few years, but I think it was Official Adventures League. Oh, that's cool. Um, I think Canny had some affiliation with it. I'm not certain. I'd have to ask him. But once we, once I became DM, um, that kind of went out the window. <laughs> like we, we had the, uh, like the, the you can come and go format, but every nothing else was actually affiliated with Adventures League or anything like that. Okay, yeah, because they have like the. Like, you, the reward system is different. Like, you don't get magic items in adventures. It's like you get, like, treasure points and stuff like that. Yeah, and then you can buy items that you saved up for in a specific yeah, you don't trade. Like, it doesn't do experience points. Instead, it's like how many sessions you've attended decides how you level up, I think, is another part of it. Yeah. Isn't that, like, let you be able to move between campaigns, basically? Like, if you have to move from Iowa to New York, you can just take the same character. Yeah, you got your same character. There's nothing, like, everyone knows he's balanced because the character's been in, you know, five sessions, so they've got five sessions worth of experience and treasure, and it's all on the same level as everyone else. I guess I'm more curious about the the library aspect as well, um, because I've known that's a thing, but I've never done it myself. Was it, like, a a room you guys were doing it, or were you just, like, in the the stacks and having to be super quiet? (laughs) They set aside uh, one of their big meeting rooms for us. Mm-hmm. It was on Wednesday nights, I think. And so we just would set up however many tables we needed, and then I'd tear it down at the end. But a little while in, they were they renovated that workspace, so we were kind of designated a corner that had a table in it in the library itself. Uh, and so we had to be kind of quiet. <laughs> yeah, that makes it harder. And then when uh, COVID hit, we kind of got kicked out. Yeah, so, of course. Yeah. And uh, we had that games never started back up again. Okay. So right now, are you playing with just your family, or do you have like a separate group of friends as well? So uh, when I was running the library game, I asked a couple of the people in that session if they wanted to start a game at my apartment, because... Mm-hmm. Uh, I kind of wanted to do a more serious and more regular game with them. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and so that was uh, the the guy who was DMing originally. He joined uh, his friend Ryan and then uh, Colin, who was just kind of there at the game. And we all got friendly with him. And he's been in my game ever since. And then Ryan and Kenny uh, dropped out of the game after the first adventure uh was over and my friend Derek joined in he'd never played D&D before but I kind of I don't want to say bullied but yeah I kind of bullied him into it <laughs> I ha- I bribed him by saying we could make Solaire of Astora cuz he was a big fan of Dark Souls mm-hmm. I learned by working with him how to translate video game characters into D&D and that was a lot of fun yeah it depends on the character like I feel like Kratos from God of War would be a lot harder because of the power scaling. Yeah, that actual powerful characters would break every single game. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
yeah, Dark Skulls has a nice like power progression, so that that and everyone's still scared of monsters in that one, so that fits better. Yeah, it does, and also a lot of the powers and the items can can easily be translated to five e because that's the system I've I've worked with this whole time. I, I've looked at the handbook for um, Pathfinder, and I'm somewhat familiar with Blades in the Dark, but mm. I've always just played uh, Fifth Edition. Yeah, that's what you know. Mm-hmm. And that's really clicked with me, and it's been the last couple of years that I've act that I've figured out how to stat things and balance things out so that it's actually reasonable. Because up on, through the first few adventures at my place, um, they were either one-shotting a lot of bosses or the fights were taking forever because no one was hitting and it, it was just a slog. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But now most big encounters... I'm happy if they last five or six rounds just because it doesn't drag on and we can ha- I can sprinkle in some interesting events that happen in that long a time. Yeah, Even though it's only right. technically 36 seconds. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know if you've tried to do like intense activity. There's this like thing I did in soccer called goalie wars where you're just running like top speed as much as you can while also trying to win this game. And the rounds in that are two minutes and whoever scores the most and you're just exhausted at the end of it. So I feel like combat is very similar, but even more, more adrenaline and more activity because you're doing it for your life instead of just for like, you know, some soccer game. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you'd get so exhausted after that if it was longer than a little bit. <laughs> it was Colin and Derek for a little while in my game. Then we went through Rhyme of the Frost Maiden, uh, which is still one of my favorite modules even though i hate it because mm-hmm. it's badly written and balanced but i still love it <laughs> uh, and then my dad joined in a couple years ago um he joined as the ranger bayek of siwa uh, which is just ripped from assassin's creed mm-hmm. and we just had a blast with that in starting in the homebrew world that we're in now that's where bayek first started in that's from the Egyptian one, right? Yeah, Assassin's Creed Origins. That we both, Dad and I, love that series, and that's our favorite game uh, of the series. I've been trying to do them in order, and I'm stuck on Syndicate. I think is the the one. No, the one before Syndicate. The uh, French Rome? Revolution one. Oh yeah, uh, Unity. Unity. Yeah. I never played that. It. I got it once, and then the disc on my Xbox or the disc player on it just wouldn't work. And so I check it as a sign that I shouldn't play it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I do them on PC, and some of the older ones it's a little bit difficult for some of the features, just because they're they're like they require a server connection, but they've dropped server access oh. for for it. So for uh, the fourth one, the the American one, there's like a DLC for like some dream that you get to experience with George Washington, where he tries to conquer america as a oh, dictator right. and you get magic powers basically yeah yeah so that doesn't work at all on pcs anymore just because you can't <laughs> actually like access the server to download the, the dlc i tried going back to play three and I'm, i just got so used to the systems that started in origins that i i can't stand it <laughs> mm-hmm. i actually i mean i haven't played as far as you in the series but i still liked one the best um because of the like info gathering part of it for assassinations 
Yeah, and I like the setting, although the color schemes are a bit bland, but the world itself is fun to explore. Yeah, it is. They make some good games. They do. Um, Derek, my friend, had to. he moved to Texas, uh-huh. so it was just Colin and my dad for a little bit, and then dad's co-worker, uh, Caleb, started in, and then he had to drop out for college, and now it is uh, Colin, my dad, and his friend, Marty. Um, who's never played any TTRPGs before, mm-hmm. and we're all kind of having a blast and learning as we go. <laughs> gotcha. Well, uh, I, I guess I had two questions. One of, one of them is, like, in your, your survey, you mentioned that you'd had two campaigns happen uh, for this, this setting. What, what's the separation there? I could. It seemed like you had, like, one campaign and had just had to keep players cycling out from the description you just gave. So, started out with, let me think back, that was Caleb, Dad, and Colin. And they started out in that adventure as recruits for a group called the Guardians. And they went along, and then my friend Derek was able to join. And then they went through that adventure. Uh, and then two or three sessions before I knew we were going to reach the climax and the end of that story, Derek had to leave. So I made the session basically about him meeting his father, discovering that there were other members of his race because uh, Derek was playing as an Aarakocra. Mm-hmm. So we just wrote him out of the story, and I made him have a comeback as an NPC at the climax. Okay. And then it worked well enough that Caleb could make the very last session that we had, the big boss fight with the oh, Beholder, cool. and then... We took about a month and a half off, I think. And uh, I started writing this new adventure. And basically, the the end of the first adventure, they traveled back in time two years and had a minor reset for events in the world. So the the current adventure that they're on takes place around the same time as the other one started with some minor differences. and a completely different location if if we have any other people join out i'm i'm fairly confident we can write them in because i do like to randomly throw npcs at them so we can do that with another player right right well yeah let, let's get into talking about the world so uh what's the name of the world i guess to start i forgot it so <laughs> doesn't come me, up that often uh, it's <laughs> no so uh I actually didn't name it until like two days ago because it, it just never came up for a thing. But I okay. found an interesting name. Ah, there it is. It is Ala Nui, um, which I just did a quick Google Translate, and that means crossroads in Hawaiian, according okay. to Google Translate. How do you spell that? Uh, A-L-A-N-U-I. Okay, got it. And then I also have, in preparations for this, I designed a actual map of the oh. overworld that is accurate to the current settings. Is the world, like, physically like Hawaii with, like, you know, islands and volcanoes and <laughs> tropics? <No. laughs> okay. Just, um, it, I, I, yeah, I wanted... So I, I wanted it to be something like Crossroads um, because there's a lot of random things that I have been thrown into it and mm-hmm. it seemed somewhat apt 
and that's just the one that I liked out of the options that I came across. Gotcha. Well, yeah, what is the world like physically? Is it, you know, a big continent or? It's planet the size of Earth. Basically, the only habitable portion is about the size of Montana. Everything else is completely barren wastelands, like it completely inhospitable. And that was a result of a war that happened 250 years ago that virtually erased all history um, and almost wiped out all of life on the planet. Yeah. So my world doesn't have a lot of like rich lore or very long backstories because history stops after about 250 years. Well, I feel like that's actually encouraged by fourth edition. Like one of the things that the base game expects is that there's like all these ruins everywhere for people to explore. So having a a devastated world kind of fits with that. Mm -hmm. So yeah. What happened to the world? Like, 250 years ago was it like a nuclear apocalypse or something like that uh no it was just basically there was a century long period that is currently known as the great war uh and it starts off with just a bunch of portals opening up across the planet and letting out hordes of monsters from another world okay and that lasts about five ten years uh before They're all closed, and the one responsible is imprisoned. And then, right after that, a meteor of pure adamantium crashes down from space, uh, and when the survivors realize just what a valuable resource it is, it starts another set of wars, um, which last about 20 years as people fight over the whole meteor. Uh, Leaves about 2 million dead. And then right after this, a lich becomes active and resurrects basically all of them and tries to wipe out all the rest of existent uh, of the living. Uh, he's defeated, which is followed by a period of natural disasters. Uh, volcanoes erupt. There's a lot of uh, earthquakes. And the world, they think it's basically falling apart, but it sticks together. Okay. Well, yeah, that does sound uh, like everything happening at once. Yeah. Uh, and then... The last year of this period, the the person who opened the portals at the very beginning, he gets free and tries to open one big portal to bring through an Abolath, uh, who had been manipulating events from its world the whole time because it had mentally dominated this the dwarf who opened them, mm-hmm. um, and the survivors barely managed to prevent the portal from opening, but it is built in such a way that they just can't, like, destroy it. So, basically, their solution is to throw it into a lake and throw magic at it to try and keep it from opening again. That seems Uh, reasonable to me. Yeah. This is a lot of different things. Like, it's still not just, like, one apocalypse. This feels like five. This whole period lasts a full century, and right at the end... The survivors, which are about a hundred thousand people, the entire world's population have survived this, so they'll they'll be able to survive. But they realize uh, it kind of gets uh, revealed to everybody that the leader who had been basically re- leading the resistance the entire time was actually responsible for opening all the portals in the first place. 
Mm-hmm. Um, he and his brother had been experimenting with magic and just opened a portal once, and that let the Abeleth dominate one of them. And basically that set off this long chain of events that led to uh, the Great War. And this really disheartened a lot of people, and he was the the dwarf who was in charge, who's I, I've just named the director. I haven't given him an actual name. Okay. He's just afraid that there's going to be another set of civil wars and um, people rebelling against his current regime will end up with all life dying on the planet. So he makes a deal with the Queen of Summer in the Fey Realm, okay. who gives him a vast amount of magical power, and he casts Modify Memory over the whole planet, Oof. and basically makes them forget the majority of the war. As far as modern history is concerned, the only event that happened, which lasted a full century, were these portals opening and monsters coming through, and it was just a really bad time for everybody. They okay. don't know who was responsible. Uh, they just know that they were able to stop it in the end. So this also, like, in addition to modifying all the memories of like the longer-lived races, is also destroying like written records, or does he have to go around doing that? So, have you ever listened to Adventure Time, or not Adventure Time, The Adventure Zone? Uh, well, uh, I've listened to Adventure Time, not not Adventure yeah. Zone. So, in in their first uh, arc, there's basically a constantly active modify memory as well mm-hmm. um, that if people look at something that has information that is forbidden uh, or that is covered by the spell, they aren't able to comprehend it. Uh, it just looks like gibberish to them. Okay, so someone looks at like an old diary entry and instead of it saying the the bad dwarf did all of this, kill him, it says gobbledygook in another language that they can't read. Basically, yeah. That's an interesting phenomenon because it would mean that like someone could be writing in their diary in, like, Elvish, right? And then you get to that one diary section about that thing, and then it turns into this other language. Is that how it works, or would the whole book be affected, or is it more like whatever you require as a plot? Yeah, the portions that pertain to it would be incomprehensible. Or I've, 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 got, I've described it as both being in, illegible and them reading it and then forgetting it afterwards. Like mm-hmm. they've also had uh, histories spoken to them, and it just goes in one ear out the other. Mm, um, that's interesting. Yeah, and and they're aware of it after the fact, and uh, the players at the time didn't know what to do with it because, like, you can't just go in. What did you say to me? And then they say it again and forget, and like that mm-hmm. that would just make a cycle of things right. that would have no solution. Yeah, that's also, like, a difficult problem to approach, like, as a player, you know, because, like, it's almost like your character wouldn't be aware of what was going on, necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, I tried to introduce that whole bit quickly and also give them a solution within a couple sessions, just because, like, going, we've been at it for almost a year now. Uh, if they that whole time they knew there was this thing that they couldn't understand that and they still had no solution, then they would 
I would, I as a player, I would figure that it's just a forgotten plot point and we'll never get to it, uh-huh. or become very frustrated and just give me the middle finger and try and do my own adventure. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, you want to not just piss off your players by having yeah. puzzles they can't solve. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you mentioned like a bunch of natural disasters. Do people still remember those? That's all kind of wrapped up into the bits that they do know. Like okay. they, they they think the, the monsters that came through for that time are responsible for everything, and it was just a really bad time. Okay, so portals opened up. Monsters like what are we what are we talking like ogres? You, you mentioned a beholder earlier. What what kind um, of monsters? They're... Basically, the whole monster manual that aren't like dragons or uh, extremely powerful creatures, because they're all under the control of the Abeleth. Oh, okay. Um, and it, this is its attempt to conquer another planet. The few times that they've encountered the remnants of the those monsters, they've been uh, blink hounds, hellhounds. Um, I statted out a whole different creature. Uh, it's based off of the beast from over the garden wall. The, it, it, it's a random variety of creatures that are still out there. Okay. There are some pockets of survivors left among them, but they're not a huge threat at the moment. Okay. So it's the, there is a like set of monsters you're pulling from, but it's not like one of the established like themes within D and D like, yeah, yeah. I don't know. There's like far realm or demons or devils would be one of the ones I'd usually pick for other dimension menace coming to the material plane. Yeah. Okay. And it's so this is technically, and from the players haven't learned anything like this, but the Aboleth is on a neighboring planet in the same solar system. If they look up in the night sky, they could see, like we mm. can see Mars at times. Like they could, it's technically visible to them. That's kind of funny. Okay, so there, there's a bunch of different things you mentioned. So the the natural disasters they think are associated. Do they know about the Aboleth, or is that something that is secret the, to most people? The Aboleth is has been erased. The guy who opened all the portals has been erased. Basically, they just think it was completely random. They don't know who was responsible, but they figured it out in the end. Ta-da. Okay. All right. You also mentioned the war. I'm guessing the the dwarf guy made it so they don't remember the war. The director. They remember it as being the war with the beasts, but they don't. Most people try not to think about it because it was a bad time. Yeah, and they don't remember like his involvement. Yes, yeah. that's, that's more relevant. Okay. Yeah, this guy sounds almost like a Fallout villain with like controlling information like that. Yeah, I'm. I tried to make him morally ambiguous because like, he, he's convinced that if he hadn't, then the world would have ripped itself apart. Um, and there are other people who are have become immune to the spell um, who think differently. And that's uh, one of the current villains that the players are facing is a guy who uh, wants to undo it. Uh, and the players have decided to maintain the spell as is because it's governments and life has been reestablished in the world, and they don't want to throw a huge boulder in the middle of that. Yeah. To... Um, this, uh, I mean, I keep thinking of other cultural things that are similar. I'm thinking of like Watchmen right now, where I don't know if you've read it, but at the end they 
or seen it, they figure out that like the villain is actually one of their friends that was trying to create some peace through establishing himself or some something like that as a villain. Yeah, he was making Doctor Manhattan the villain in the movies. Yeah, so it sounds somewhat like that, where they discover like the you know the heroes discover the truth, but then decide not to reveal it because revealing it would be worse than leaving it how it is. Yeah, that. That I, that I think is what their current plan is to just leave it be, but they're got all these secrets revealed to them in the Feywilds, and then they return to their world, and uh, the guy that they met, who was also immune and was trying to undo the spell, was active in their world, and they're following his tracks right now. Uh, See so okay. just what else he was up to you mentioned something about um the director having some like guardians that are a holdover from before the apocalypse stuff yes so uh in you can think of the guardians as kind of like the jedi or maybe the green lantern corps and that they are they're considered peacekeepers that can go throughout the world and they're highly trained they answer to the director and his uh his own underlings like it's it's a chain of command with the director at the top okay. and basically they get sent out um to either uh do negotiations to do cool uh important events for the guardians as their representatives um there's an entire branch dedicated to hunting down monsters that were left over from the war Mm-hmm. Um, there's also another branch that is, uh, there are the fire keepers who set up shop in small villages along the border with the wastelands and basically act as, uh, protectors for those towns from any monsters that might wander into the area. Okay. So they're doing all sorts of good things for the world. Yeah. Uh, they're, yeah. Okay. Um, and what? What are they like physically? Are these like angels or constructs or? They are normal people. Okay. Um, the my first adventure, the players joined them, um, and okay, so it's more like an organization than like a, a physical like this thing is a guardian. This it's more like this person has become a guardian. Yes, sorry. Okay, gotcha. All right. Uh, okay, so earlier we mentioned like the the world physically, and you went into all the like apocalypse stuff, but we never talked about like what that little Montana region is like. Is it all mountains, all forest, um, or you know like a, a mix of you know all of the seven seven different kinds of, of uh, biomes? <laughs> yeah, it is. The majority is fields, grassland, um, with fertile soil. It's under the control of two major powers. Um, there's the Steadings, who live in uh, and around the mountain range that goes right in through it. Um, and then there's the Tribes, who live in a desert um, that's reachable only via going down a sheer cliff, and it just is this wide expanse out just along the side of the Steadings themselves. Mm-hmm. There, the northern half of it is mostly used for growing crops. Um, it is bordered by a uh, 
wall of forest a couple miles thick uh, that is tended to by a bunch of druids who who basically use this to uh, gradually expand the habitable region. Like the forest is slowly spreading outwards and people can gradually follow it. Um, And it's oh so slowly returning the planet to habitability. Maybe uh, it's not very quick. It's only a few feet a year, but it will expand eventually exponentially. Okay. Um, That's funny. I don't usually think of forests as like habitable for people usually. Yeah. So how I've kind of got it is there's the, it's called the wall wood. um, And then any towns or civil or, um, villages are right on the um, where it turns from grassy fields into the forest. So they're right there along the edge near mm-hmm. the, and they they tend to go by the rivers that flow down from the wastelands. Um, okay. So there, there's not very many that are actually inside the wallwood itself. Um, they're mostly on the habitable side. Okay, but it's providing like a framework for other things to develop because of it controlling yeah. water and that kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. On that subject of water, um, mo- all water that comes from the north, uh, which is uh, the uninhabitable zone, is mm. toxic. I've got it that it's actually been irradiated by the various magics magics that happened over at the source. Yeah. Um, and when it comes down, it's impossible to drink. But they've now recently installed uh, magical filters to make that along along the border there to make all that water drinkable again. Um, so that's solving a problem, but. I'm. I'd like eventually to give them a reason to follow the river all the way north to find that source. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know if we'll get to that in this adventure. Gotcha. It might not tie in cleanly. Yeah, that does sound cool though. Like trying to get to a radiation source, but having to protect yourself on the way. Mm-hmm. I was talking about Fallout before. I'm sure I um, know there's been some Fallout quests that are like that in the games. Okay. Uh, what are the the races in your your world? You mentioned dwarves. I'm assuming there's humans. Uh, mm-hmm. What what else are present? It's kind of a hodgepodge. Um, my dad plays a tiefling, and we've decided that tieflings are very rare in this society. Okay. Uh, one of the characters that they met was at in the Guardians. Who was a very high-ranking member? He was uh, tiefling as well, um, Professor Screwtape, and they've kind of hit up uh, friendly uh-huh. relations with him. Um, there's Dragonborn. There are elves. Um, most of the the primary races exist, if in relative abundance. Um, there are Aracokra, okay. only on a small island to the south. That people don't know about. Um, Derek's character Solaire, uh, he wore a special helmet that polymorphed him into being a human until he took it off. Okay. So he could maintain his disguise because 
giant bird people never seen before. Let's not freak out, everybody. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. Did you mention elves there? Yeah. Uh, most of the main D&D races. Although, I don't think I've thrown in Tabaxi or, like, the Gith. Yeah, the more exotic ones. Yeah. Yeah, everybody's all about Gith right now, because the Baldur's Gate just came out. Yeah, I don't... I'd like to play that, but I'd need to buy the new Xbox. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or get a, a better gaming computer. It's an investment, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, in your survey, you mentioned that dwarves had been mostly wiped out by the apocalypse stuff. Is there a reason they got targeted more than other races? Um, I think I put that in erroneously. Uh, oh, uh, okay. Because <laughs> now that I've actually thought about it, the players have been dwarves. There, I haven't actually made it a part of the world that the a dwarf is rare. Um, I I don't remember. I don't know what I was thinking at that time, but it, that's uh, not correct. All right. Well, yeah, uh, I think that's also part of designing worlds is adapting to what you want to do <laughs> later on. And in your survey, you also mentioned furbolgs being more of like on the same realm as tieflings, and I feel like they're not usually a base race in people's campaigns. Yeah, so um, I... uh, One of the characters that the players regularly encounter is a furbolg named uh, Barrow, who -hmm. is actually a... One of the few times I got to be a player in a campaign, and I just kind of fell in love with the race and the character. Um, So there's just these roving bands of druids who tend to the wall wood to assist the farmers, uh, help crops to grow faster with their magic. Like they, most of them have joined the guardians Mm -hmm. because Barrow did way back. He was a founding member. All of them live in the North and are just working in the forest on their, maintaining it and just keeping things growing and gradually expanding. Uh, okay. They're they're not a common sight in most cities, but where the players are, they're not uncommon. Okay, so they're kind of like a, a druid, druidic race. Yeah. And uh, sounded like somewhat nomadic from what you were describing. Yeah, they, the, they patrol the entire border and just kind of wander around the area as they feel the need to go. Gotcha. Do you want to talk about like different nations in your world or gods first? Uh, I can go to nations because um, I, I touched on them a little bit, but not a whole lot. So the, the true primary powers in the world are the steadings and the tribes. Um, the steadings, you can kind of think of them as maybe 1800s, late 1700s Great Britain. Mm-hmm. Um, industrial revolution is starting. They have trains. Um, there's the beginning of automobiles and cool. factories are popping up here and there. Um, they are also experimenting with like uh, bigger forms of construction without actually thinking of the consequences. One of the one of the big things that the players encountered was the Dimsdale Dimadam, um, which Dim- was Dimadam, uh, not Dimadam. Yeah. <laughs> 
owned and operated by Doug Demadam. Of course. Uh, in the city of Dimsdale, because that's I just had so much fun with that one. Yeah. Um, and I modeled it after the um, failure of the St. Francis Dam in California, I think back in the 30s. Um, okay. It had this whole reserve of water just flood this whole valley and wipe out all these little towns and just make its way to the ocean. Uh, and while the players were in this area, that happened. Um, oh, that's cool. And I, I had a whole lot of fun calculating, okay, how fast did the actual tidal wave go, and how would that calculate over to D&D? Would any of them be able to outrun it? And um, basically, Bayek had a, a horse that he could summon from a ring, and he okay. was... Because of the game's calculations, he was able to outrun the tidal wave barely and <laughs> warn Dimsdale. Um, okay. And it was this whole big uh, scene where they severely reduced the number of casualties, and it was it was really cool. And I just had a whole lot of fun designing and working that out. Yeah, that does sound really fun. They're starting to experiment with muskets. Uh, which I also translated into D and into five E like stat wise. So basically, anyone can have access to magical damage. I thought five um, E already had rules for muskets. Did you change those? I don't or? know. I it wasn't in the DM's guide, and I don't know what expansion book that would be. Um, I thought it was in the DM's guide. No, no, I'm checking. I gotta know. Okay. Unless I've just overlooked it entirely, which could be, but I, I just made them. If they are on the DMs guide, they're probably like real muskets that shoot lead balls or something like that. If I had it near at hand, I'd look, but I don't. Um, but well, go ahead, I'll, I'll look while you keep talking. <laughs> mine, uh, basically, you have a spell contained in a glass marble. Uh, and you put that in the gun, and then it explodes in there and is directed out the barrel. Okay. So that lets them choose from, like, uh, fire, ice, lightning, and force damage. Oh, okay, um, cool. Because you're basically using either magic missile, uh, scorching ray, uh, ray of frost, I think. So, okay, so these oh, are more but, like wands that anybody can use than, than guns, yeah, in a way. Yeah, okay. they don't do a whole lot of damage. But they're it's magical damage, so that can be very helpful at times. Yeah, if something has resistance against, you know, non magical weapon attacks, that's a pretty common thing. Yeah. Um I found those rules on muskets. Um they're on page two hundred and sixty eight. Hmm. Uh, okay. That sounds like you already have your own satisfying home homebrew stuff, so I'll have to find you said two sixty eight? Yep, DMG 268. I'll look at that later. Okay, so your world is kind of steampunk then. That's the, the kind of cultural it, feel it, to it? It That portion of it is, yeah. The tribes, I kind of based off of ancient Egypt or in a mix kind of, of, I think it was Maya at the beginning. Like they are very technologically, they're not anywhere near the steadings. But they've kind of gone a whole different route of um, they use magic almost as a common thing. They 
traverse the sands on uh, these ships that they basically wooden canoes that they just propel with wind, uh, kind of like the mm-hmm. sand gliders from Avatar. Um, right. Yeah, that, I know that. Part of the, their culture is to raise and domesticate some of the monsters that live in the desert to be able to become like beasts of burden and stuff like that. So you'll, they haven't been there very often, but if they were to, I've, I've added in people riding around on uh, giant scorpions, things like that, using, using various monsters as non-hostile creatures. And it's, I tried to make it just a different path from the settings to keep them as a, kind of a rival and an adequate military power. Okay. And they're kind of, it sounds like sort of like nomadic herders from what you described with that. Yeah. So they're split into, uh, there's four major tribes and then there's a bunch of miners tribes, but the four major ones take turns performing various roles in the region. Um, like okay. some will tend to uh, the complex of temples that are specific to the gods that they hold as like the top gods in that they worship mm-hmm. um they'll take turns tending to that they'll take turns working in the fields being the primary military force and to maintaining the few permanent structures throughout the region like they the four big tribes will take turns doing those and the little, the smaller tribes will assist or just go throughout them all as mm-hmm. they see fit. Gotcha. Uh, my dad's first character came from one of the bigger tribes, and it was a plot point that his tribe got wiped out so oh. that they wouldn't be able to tend to the complex of temples, which is where, like, buried underneath that is the Adamantium Meteor that they fought over during the great war. Right. So it's, they, they don't know what's there, but the people who were active as the bad guys during that campaign knew it was, and they wanted to get their hands on that resource. So they threw off the rotation so that their people would be able to get into the temple and start working it. Okay. I see. Yeah. That's definitely a very valuable resource. Mm-hmm. Um, but those are the two primary uh, government bodies in their area. Their relations have always been tense mm-hmm. because the Steadings kind of consider the tribes to be backwater hillbillies. Um, of course, not yeah. The you can you can definitely think of them as one is Great Britain and the other maybe India in that they're completely different cultures, but one thinks they're better than the other. Uh-huh. and is trying desperately to force change on them. But the tribes are not really having it, and so they've cut, They've kept most relations just very brief and uh, limited any contact with the Steadings to a single city along their border. Uh-huh. Um, and that's just uh, that's a big trade outpost, and... It's kept peace for a while, but one of the recent plot points that I started adding in was that um, there was a civil war in the tribes, and one 
of the tribes is emerging as a power um, because they're able to raise the dead and use those. And they're beginning to start uh, amassing forces against the settings. Um, There's all these refugees fleeing from the desert and the players haven't had a chance to decide just what they're going to do. Um, they've learned about it, but they were in the middle of going home after a long adventure. So I think this next session, they'll actually kind of decide just what their approach is going to be vis-a-vis this whole upcoming war. Is it their problem to solve, necessarily? It's not, but um, my dad's character was actually dad and Marty's character. Uh Uh, They were both in the army before um and then dad's character retired and marty's uh was discharged because he came down with a disease called wellropsy um that basically was incurable until the players recently discovered a cure uh no they they discovered it at the end of, at the beginning of this campaign mm-hmm. they might get i don't think i'll have them get called back up just because Colin's character has no impetus to join the war because he's an elf that's about 800 years old. Um, And so probably out of any age limitations that a uh, draft would impose. (laughs) I never (laughs) thought of that as being part of it. Especially for elves. Do they even have a a draft age limit? I think they live about 900 years, according to the book, or something like that. And so he would be the equivalent of, what, 80s, 70s, 80s? Oh, wow. Okay. I think the draft cuts off at, like, 40s, when it it was still a thing. Yeah, when it was really a necessity, yeah. Yeah. Um, So I don't think, uh, unless it sounds like a reasonable thing, don't think Dad or Marty will get drafted, but if they want to start helping in the war effort, um, I'll give them that. We're, they're kind of at a crossroads of what they could do right now. Okay. Alright, yeah, that, that seems like a pretty good picture of the like political climate. Um, before I talked about gods, do you want to get into that now? Yeah, so in most of my adventures, the gods tend to take a very back role. Um, I try not to have them ever like directly enter the picture because uh, I think it, it, that's just not my style. Uh-huh. Um, I know like clerics and warlocks get their powers from patrons and so that the, the gods do exist, but um, they're, I'm never going to have the players actually meet them. Uh-huh. But there are a couple that are, they're lesser known deities in this world, but the players become a, have become aware of them in past and the current adventure. One of the gods in that's in the book that I have always liked using is Savras, um, god of divination and dreams. Okay. Basically, I use her to meddle with things. <laughs> um, <laughs> like, the I have it written in one of my notes that basically her whole approach is just to throw rocks into the stream of time and 
make rant, make ripples, uh-huh. not not to di- directly change its flow, but to kind of randomly alter it and see what happens. Okay. And so she was uh, responsible for Gregory, one of the previous characters. He that's why he became immune to the modify memory spell. Oh, okay. He got an item from her, or she made an item come into his possession that gradually made him immune. So, um, can he, now that he's immune, can he give that to someone else? Uh, he could. So, the Gregory was played by Caleb, so he's no longer with us. Oh, okay. Um, what I did with Gregory is made him into one of the villains for this arc or for this adventure. Oh, okay. He's he's the guy they met in the Fey Wilds who was trying to undo the modify memory spell. Gotcha. Because it, it's got an anchor point there that, if correctly destroyed, um, will undo it entirely. So that's that's what he's doing with his knowledge, because. Caleb was kind of playing Gregory as very secretive, uh, having his own agenda for a lot of things, and we all are kind of agreeing in this game that that's exactly what he would do. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay. That was Savras. Uh, she has also given my current players like minor boons, um, just because they uh, they helped avenge the desecration of her temple. In their area, uh, and so she figured they would be interesting rocks to throw in the stream of time, and gave them all some minor abilities. There's another god that I made up for this game. That's in in the previous adventure played a uh, his his followers played a big role, and I think they might come back up again depending on what the players do. And that uh, uh-huh. he that is uh, Bentus the god of tradesmen, travelers, and the forgotten. Basically, his worshippers now, he gave them the capacity to travel between locations through gateways. Okay. That they made them all in within his temples. So you can only step between the various temples of Ventus, um, but they are kind of scattered everywhere. And so only the the group uh, they're called the Sun Guard. They're the only ones who know about those gateways, and so they use them kind of for their own benefit. Oh, that's cool. Um, the The first group of player, the first adventure, the players gained access to these uh, gateways, um, but I I don't know if I'll have my current the current adventure use them, and I'm still deciding. Okay, so they don't want to use those for trade. They want to keep them secret to, for some sort of power hoarding thing. Yeah, kinda. The Sun Guard are kind of so they were originally formed during the Great War to fight the undead mm-hmm. uh, that were raised by the Lich, and then he got erased from memory, so they don't know their own heritage, oh. and they are kind of existing in as. Kind of bounty hunters, kind of mercenaries for hire, um, with their own minor agenda. But they're they're relatively benevolent, but they 
this this ability this capacity that they have as a group they don't really feel required to share with the world mm-hmm. but they they use it mostly to keep from having to ride trains <laughs> it's funny having a industrialized society for D, which is usually like you know high fantasy and then teleportation is still better than trains <laughs> <laughs> As as for like other gods and things, my we the players usually follow like uh, the D and D list of gods if they uh-huh. need one. Um, although I don't think I don't think Colin has a list of deity that he worships or Hank or I know my dad when he was Bayek, the D and D book had a lot of Egyptian gods, and so he would uh, acknowledge and worship them, but they don't play a huge role. Um, but there are a few like uh, entities that the gods have put into the world that um, they have encountered. Uh, one of them is uh, the Tagat Agasta, which is uh, basically this book that contains living letters that basically whoever opens it they are able to read and know the intentions of the person who opens it. And if they think that person's worthy, they will change reality to fit their needs. Like the, the way they used the uh, players used it in the first game, Bayek consulted the book and it opened a portal back in time to when his tribe got wiped out. Oh, okay. And they went back and prevented it and defeated the one who had set the whole plot in motion, who had been their villain throughout the whole campaign. Um, And they took him out before any of his major plans were set fully into motion. Okay. That's a very strong power. But like it only, it'll only do that once for a person Uh, and only if they think they're worthy. So it's it is kind of a Deus Ex Machina, but I, I don't. I'm gonna try and not implement it too often, <laughs> or try and find different ways for it to work. Like because it the lore behind it that I have written down is basically they are believed to be the origin of language and are basically untapped potential reality. So they they could change anything they want to, but they have their own set of rules as to how distance works, and they maintain those rules as as far as they're able to. Yeah, that's a really interesting one. Uh, I mean, the easiest way to control that application is to just make it so the book isn't easily accessible like other artifacts. And yeah. you use it, and then it disappears. Uh, this one, <laughs> they had to, to to reach it to begin with, they had to uh, go through this whole temple complex, and they got to a locked door that they were supposed to find, like, a set of keys for and to explore the whole area. Um, and by exploring, they would find the magical things that would help them, that would restore health and mm-hmm. uh, their spell slots. And then they ignored all of it, and kind of just uh, forced their way into the locked room, 
because they got through on a technical because there was a window open and they managed one person managed to squeeze through it um and that was my my mistake for designing it like that and actually one i stated that it was like this and they took advantage of it so like that it was my fault that they skipped it but they shot themselves in the foot and i told them so afterwards <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It sounds like they outsmarted you, and you're just angry. Oh, they 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 did, but they were also went into the next encounter with virtually no spell slots and all that basically have hell. So they, I I even told them beforehand that it would benefit them to explore, and then they didn't. So. <laughs> On your survey, you also mentioned that you have some gods that you like bring between different campaigns. Yes. So. There, uh, the Tagata Gasta was made for this campaign, but I, I'm adding it to my list of items that will move between worlds. Oh, cool. Just because I, when I make something that I like, I like to move it to different uh, places. Cause yeah, hang on to it. Um, a couple of the other things that have moved through uh, between worlds are from my very first adventure that I wrote um, one is a gold dragon uh, whose name I have forgotten uh, no it was Nazir I think um, but he after the very first adventure he basically uh, created the species of warforged on his planet and yeah. his assistant Philip they now travel the cosmos as the owners of a black blacksmithing blacksmithing business. Okay, and like he's he's set up some uh, branches of it in different worlds. They they met Philip, and he was a very helpful character when we did Icewind Dale. They I don't think I actually put him in the first adventure in the current world, but I, I know he's going to come around here soon. Um, and then international franchising. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> one of the villains is actually a, uh, invasive species of interdimensional Walmart. I saw that. <laughs> I wanted to ask you about that. <laughs> um, I can get to that shortly, but the other, uh, creature that moves between worlds is actually from a short story I wrote back in high school that I just wanted to throw into that first adventure and has been um, a staple of everything else. And it's just this creature made entirely of shadows that it was in that first adventure, the last of its kind. And it has been slowly re making copies of itself. Huh. Um, and it just wants to find a home um, that it can live in and like make its own society. It's not hostile or anything, but it has been used um, as like a protector of certain uh, dungeons. Uh, Nazir used it in his own um, lair as a protector. Like as far as writing is concerned, it can't be killed, but it can be uh, dissolved temporarily. And okay. So the 
the players have faced various versions of it in all the campaigns, and I eventually I think they'll actually gain it as an ally. Not in, definitely not in this adventure, but maybe in the next one. Um, because I want the next one to be like the big wrap up of this period of history mm-hmm. for that the this world. Um, but I don't I don't think this campaign will get there. Gotcha. Uh, so the the Walmart species. <laughs> uh, so in the first campaign, they went to a place called Downtown, um, which was a town, basically a train hub in the middle of the mountains, and it was home to the world's first Walmart. Uh, and it was advertised everywhere that it was like this world's very first Walmart expanded from an unknown area or something like that. And it kind of just appeared, it started being constructed. And um, when the first one was opened, there was a, uh, basically a portal to a Nexus world of Walmarts uh, that were, was employees only. Um, And that's where, (laughs) (laughs) Um, and basically that's where people were coming to train the new employees. And once this Walmart got up and running, they would close off that portal and the Walmart would begin to open other branches in the world. The goal of it is to basically become the only business in, uh, the world. So, and it offers basically everything a Walmart does except for some of the different technologies and stuff like that. But it had like a uh, great value brand, bow and arrows, um, bicycles. Like it had Cheetos. It was, it was this random thing that I, I that very much reflects my DM style in that uh, if I think an idea is funny and I can somewhat make it work, uh-huh. I'll throw it in. <laughs> And that, that one was uh, was a result of a conversation just between me and some other friends that I was like, this will be hilarious. I'm going to put it in. And then I did. <laughs> so you mentioned it's kind of like a villain or a monster, like, but it doesn't sound like it's exactly negative. It's just sort of a interdimensional storefront that's self-aware. Yeah, and it's... Uh, it didn't take place in that first adventure, but in this one, it is taking business from other uh, businesses in the town, and a lot of other storefronts are closing down, but Walmart is thriving. And I kind of... So there's an episode of South Park where this happens with Walmart, and it is sentient, and I kind of want to do that, where it becomes the only source of employment, and it starts to gradually rule the world. I think they did that with Amazon, not with Walmart. Oh, did they? I don't remember. Well, anyways, yes, I, I know the episode you're talking about. But, like, just for comedic effect, that's going to come up eventually. I don't know how. Another Walmart is going to open in the area where the players live, and it, I'm going to start implementing it that way. But it's not... I don't want it to turn into... Like, oh, this whole arc, this whole campaign's been about Walmart because it hasn't. It's just, I, it, it's a comedic bit that I've thrown in 
and I'm now forced to do stuff with. <laughs> okay. Oh, well, that's clever. I think um I'm not even sure how you oppose that, I guess. <laughs> Just go in and start breaking everything in the store. Well, uh, if from from South Park, they have to find a mirror in the television department in the electronics department and break it. But they have to go through like the embodiment of Walmart and it's it is it's a whole weird funny scene, but I'm I'm thinking it might just turn into a a dungeon that has bits and pieces of that in it. I'm I'm still it's still vague in my head, but when we get to it, I'll, I'll nail it out. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah, maybe the the new uh, South Park game will give you some ideas. <laughs> Man, I feel like we talked about a lot of the different questions I had about the the world. Um. We already touched on a bit from your campaign. Were there other things that you wanted to to mention? So part of what I'm trying to do with the current story uh, is tie a lot of it back to the Great War um, and basically have the players think that events might be starting to repeat themselves or that things left over from the war are still highly active in the world. the the resurrecting dead by the tribes is actually uh because one of the lich's acolytes mm-hmm. back when he was about to be defeated the this guy saw the writing on the wall and was like okay i'm out of here and kept his head low for the next century or so this lich was one of the like bad guys during the apocalypse Yes, time. he he was right after the meteor fell down. He started res- raising uh, armies to wipe out the survivors and stuff like that. Okay. Uh, and he got defeated, but his acolyte is basically following in his footsteps, um, and he has met the players and is now trying to manipulate them into helping him. Uh, so he he gave the tribes the capacity to resurrect the dead and control them, but he's using the players to find remnants from uh, his master's campaign. Uh, Like his master Ataraxis had a flying fortress that had a font of power in the middle of it. Um, And he wants that because that's cool. (laughs) Um, And so he's using the players to kind of go out and explore what they think is going to give them answers for Gregory's dick, but it's actually going to be helping uh, Screwtape, the uh, tiefling they met earlier, who they think is helping them, but isn't. Oh, it is a tiefling. Okay. Yeah. He's been active all this time trying to get into a position where he can continue his master's work. um, And he's tricked Currently, if the player if the players are listening, spoilers. Um, but he's tricked them into thinking that he is directing them to tools that'll help them and the forthcoming war and to keep peace in the world. But there's they're gonna find all the stuff, and then I'm hoping that they will be able to uh, have a climactic battle in the um, flying fortress that he's trying to find 
and either he'll kill them or they'll defeat him and it, that'll that'll determine where the next story arc goes but i'm i'm just trying a lot to make things memorable for the war mm-hmm. that like to drop points that they'll be like oh this is associated with the thing that everybody forgot um because a problem i run into is that i am very bad at making things memorable if they're boring uh or if it's just like an information dump that's hard to remember because my players aren't my players aren't your typical like highly invested D&D people um this is mostly just every other week we get together and have fun eating food and hanging out and also there's a D&D game going yeah i feel um, like most people play that way so having big lore and info dumps is just talking at them and then they'll forget it the next by the next morning because it's not super important to them so i'm i'm trying to sprinkle all this and make it tie back to things that they've already encountered mm-hmm. and and help them to correlate things and i also try and keep good notes to remind them of things that they've probably forgotten um just cuz I know how hard it is to pay attention to something that I didn't write because I've, I've got this whole thing committed in my mind and they're just there for a few hours every other week. And they don't, they don't see the whole picture. They haven't worked for weeks on this like I have. So I have to make sure that everything is easily recallable and, and is memorable for them to enjoy. And, yeah. And, and... Well, I actually like DMing for that exact reason. Like, I get the whole picture for myself, and I don't have to feel left out of parts. I can keep experiencing the game in between sessions. Yeah, I don't. Ha- I don't have to piece things together. Right. Maybe. <laughs> so. Yes. Yes. Exactly. A lot of this is just trying to keep things from getting too, too wild and crazy. I, and I know I say that having made Walmart one of my villains, um, but. If things are memorable and also make sense, then I, I think my players will be able to put everything together and actually have a good time with the game. Yeah, that's good. Well, yeah, I guess you kind of answered one of my questions there. Like, any advice you have for DMs is usually one of my last questions. Oh, yeah. Uh, also, don't be afraid to plagiarize. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, yes. Yeah, I'm the guy who rips straight from Dark Souls, from Pokemon, from... Uh, uh, Assassin's Creed. Like, if you think something's cool, throw it in. Like, you don't you don't have to adapt it and make it. Oh, this. So I want to do Gwyn from Dark Souls, but I'm gonna name him Lin. Uh, and his power won't be lightning; it'll be fire. You don't you don't have to do that. You can just copy paste, as long as it makes sense. And you're not using it for like profit and stuff, so you don't get sued. Right. But like, if you think something's cool, throw it in. And that's that's honestly how I got my friend Derek to play the game, is that he had a character that he liked that I helped him make, and that it's part of the part of the fun of being DM is helping your players to enjoy the game as well and do their wild and wacky things. 
because it's not just about you telling a story it's about them living in the world and carrying out their own personal plots and causing chaos as they see fit <laughs> right right well, uh yeah um do you have anything else tim or do you think we're we're all set i think i'm good okay well thank you for coming on the show i really appreciate it yeah thank you for having me